Father, your word is living and active. Thank you that we have a chance to gather before it tonight. I pray that you would allow your Holy Spirit to be working in each of our hearts as we hear the truth of your word, that you would further conform us to the image of your Son, that our hearts would be encouraged as we leave from here and go out into the workplace, into our families, into the world who does not know you and does not love Christ. Thank you that you sustain us as your local body here in Xenia. I pray this evening will be profitable, that you allow me to speak clearly, and that most of all, your word would shine forth as the light that it is in each of our lives. We love you. We thank you for Christ who allows us to gather here united as a body. In Jesus' name, amen. Tonight we're going to be in 1 Kings, 1 Kings 19, if you want to start turning there. If you've been here at Cornerstone for any length of time recently, we've been talking a lot about how the world's been getting darker around us, right? Sin is accepted and celebrated. Our culture is sowing rebellion against Scripture, and it's reaping the effects of rejecting the Lord. You know, Romans 1, it's not just a text we're reading anymore. It it reads like a newspaper headline. We see every aspect of that text played out. With that said, I'm not going to be talking about tonight how dark the culture is around us. Uh, I don't think that point needs to be explained to us any further. But I am going to talk about one of the dangers believers like you and I face when we live in such a dark, sinful culture. And that danger is, is hopelessness. That danger is despair. It's a sense of cynicism or being defeated or of being alone. It's a hopelessness that comes from believing we we might be fighting a losing war, that uh, our church is standing alone for the truth in the larger country. Uh, And to address this danger, I I think going back to 1 Kings 19, there's a really helpful passage um, that's going to help clarify and encourage our hearts this evening. Uh, The prophet Elijah and God's answer to Elijah, uh, I think, is a very encouraging text for us all to hear uh, tonight. So I'm going to start in verse 9 of 1 Kings 19, but I'm really going to focus on verses 14 and 18. But I'm going to start in 9 to get the context. Suddenly the word of God came to Elijah, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of armies, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are looking for me to take my life. Then he said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the Lord's presence. At that moment the Lord passed by. A great and mighty wind was tearing at the mountains and was shattering cliffs before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a voice, a soft whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Suddenly, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, he replied, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they're looking for me to take my life. Then the Lord said to him, Go and return by the way you came to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you are to anoint Hazael as king over Aram. You are to anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meloha, as prophet in your place. Then Jehu will put to death whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death whoever escapes the sword of Jehu. But I will leave 70,000 in Israel, every knee that is not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So First uh, and Second Kings, it's really one book in the Hebrew Bible, and it's not something we, we go to every day. Um, so I just want to give a little bit of context before we go into the two verses I want to hone in on. Uh, the book of Kings together, First and Second Kings, the goal... I, I think in the text is to show that Israel's exile and the destruction of Jerusalem was a direct result of their sin and breaking God's covenant. Uh, Deuteronomy 28, which you're going to look at uh, later on in the sermon, uh, God said this would happen and warned Israel that if they break his covenant, if they abandon him, he is going to judge them. And in the, the author of Kings, he, he ties all of these covenant curses that happened to Israel and Judah to their failure to worship the Lord alone, to their failure to keep the covenant. 
So the goal of kings is to establish a causal relationship between Israel and their king's failure to obey God's covenant and the exile, right? So one leads to the other, disobedience, judgment. Uh, And again, this is in complete fulfillment to the word of the Lord that he gave in Deuteronomy. It's a warning. With that said, the book of Kings really does focus on sin and its consequences, Uh, And you can see that even in the structure of kings. So first king starts with Solomon building this great temple uh, and the other rulers from other nations coming to see Solomon's great wealth and wisdom. But kings ends with the destruction of Jerusalem, including Solomon's temple, and Judah's king is eating from the table of Babylon's king, right? So you see the fall from this glorious beginning to they're in exile and they're captives. So Kings really highlights the sinfulness of sin and the destruction it brought about on the nation of Israel. And if you read through, each king in the book is evaluated by how well they either kept the covenant or broke the covenant, and how well they either turned Israel away from idols or if they set up idols. But also integral to kings is this idea of prophets, right? Prophets are messengers of God who pronounce judgment on Israel because of their behavior. And they also call Israel's repent before it's too late. And Elijah, especially early on in the two books of Kings, really dominates the narrative. He's really uh, the main prophet we see at the beginning part of these books. So in the immediate context uh, around 1 Kings 19, this passage really is a low point in Elijah's life and ministry. Uh, And it comes right after one of the most memorable victories, probably in all of Scripture. Uh, You all know the story. Elijah challenges the false prophets uh, to call down fire from heaven, and they can't do it. Uh, But Elijah, when he calls upon the Lord, uh, it's vindicated, and all the prophets, the false prophets of Baal, are put to death. Uh, and what's amazing is after this, after this victory and God exposes these false prophets as frauds is where you see Elijah's life turning after that. So verse 3 of chapter 19, um, we see that uh, Elijah becomes afraid and runs for his life. And the reason is he's in imminent danger because Jezebel, who's one of the, the rulers of the land who's leading people away from the Lord, has promised to get revenge on uh, Elijah killing her prophets. So let's read the first three verses. Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, may the gods punish me and do so severely if I don't make your life like the life of the one of them, like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then Elijah became afraid and immediately ran for his life. Some manuscripts don't say Elijah became afraid. It says Elijah saw and he ran for his life. The idea is he's in imminent danger. The most powerful woman in the land is promising to kill Elijah. Uh, and this sends Elijah into despair and depression. In fact, if you read verse 4, if you, if you jump down, he actually asks the Lord that he would die. Verse 4, But he went on a day's journey into the wilderness. He sat down under a broom tree and prayed that he might die. He said, I have had enough. Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Interestingly, God answers this prayer by providing food and water for Elijah to keep him alive. So, so after that, that episode, Elijah's physically safe, but Jezebel has driven this prophet of God to, to fear and despair. He literally, when our text begins, he's hiding in a cave. Uh, verse 9 starts, he entered a cave and spent the night there. And this is the sad state we find Elijah in when we, when we jump into our text tonight. He's alone, he's in a cave, his life's at risk, and he's seemingly defeated. And then God comes to him and asks, what are you doing here? And for the remainder of the evening, I want to focus on Elijah's answer to that question, what are you doing here? And then God's response to Elijah's response. Okay, so just looking at verse 14, there's a couple words I want to, I want to look into before we begin the, the full exposition. The first word is zealous. He says, Elijah says, I have been very zealous for the Lord of hosts. The, this word, uh, kana, is actually used twice here in the, in the Hebrew. And in the Bible, a lot of times a doubling of a Hebrew verb conveys emphasis. That's why your uh, Bible probably says he's very zealous instead of just normally zealous. Uh, that's the English trying to capture this idea that Elijah is very zealous for the Lord of hosts. You could also translate it as Elijah saying, I have been zealous, yes, zealous 
for the Lord of hosts. Uh, So he's claiming a a very passionate service to the Lord. And and then he mentions the the Israelites have abandoned God's covenant. Uh, And most of us know, right, covenant, this comes from the idea of cutting. uh, Because traditionally, when you make a covenant with with someone, both parties pass through the divided bodies of a sacrifice. If you want to read a text that illustrates that, you should go to Genesis 15, Abraham and God making a covenant, or God making a covenant to Abraham. Uh, so, so that's the, what that word means. And then he says, I alone am left. And, and that literally means he's left over. I, I'm left behind. I'm the one who remains. Uh, and wh- what's interesting here is Elijah says that I'm the only one left. And then God uses almost the exact same phrase when he responds to him and says, I will leave several thousand in Israel. Right? So uh, it's almost as if God's saying, you know, Elijah, you're saying you're the only one left over, but let me correct you, I actually have 7,000 left over who have not bowed the knee. Uh, God is sort of using a play of words to directly answer Elijah's complaint. And finally, Baal, um, this is the supreme male deity of the Phoenicians or the Canaanites, and the word actually is translated just means Lord. And that's one of the reasons in this text, Baal worship among Israel was such a abomination, such a devastating sin, because it's a conflict of lordships. There's God and there's this false God. You can't combine both like Israel was trying to do. And finally, I just want to make note, God says every knee that has not bowed and every mouth that has not kissed him, we all know this, but both of these are ideas of allegiance, right? When you when you bow or you kiss someone, you're, you're aligning yourself with them. So God's saying these 7,000, they have not aligned themselves with this idol, with this false God. So with that context established and a couple of those, those words defined, there's uh, three different things I want you to see in these two verses. The first is, I want you to see the darkness of the God-hating culture. The darkness of the God-hating culture. In our text, Elijah, when he's asked by God, what are you doing here? He gives three summary sins that characterized Israel at the time. Verse 14, I have been very zealous for the Lord of hosts, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. So the first sin that Elijah calls out is Israel has broken God's covenant. And this is no small thing. If you have read from the beginning of the Pentateuch to here, you know that God called Israel out of bondage and slavery to enter a covenant with them. And in giving them this covenant, God promises Israel blessing on one hand if they obey, and judgment and curses on the other hand if they break it. You don't have to turn there, but in Deuteronomy 27 and 28, God really defines Israel's covenant obligations. Uh, the, the first verse of Deuteronomy 28 says, Now if you, Israel, faithfully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all his commands I am giving you today, the Lord your God will put you far above the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come and overtake you because you obey the Lord your God. And then he lists a whole bunch of wonderful blessings if Israel keeps that their part of the covenant. But notice, all of these blessings are based on an if-then statement. If Israel keeps their end of the covenant, then God will bless them with this, that, or the other. And, and this begs the question, right, what will happen if Israel does not keep God's covenant? It, the text goes on and says, But if you do not obey the Lord your God by carefully following all these commands and statutes I am giving you today, all these curses will come and overtake you. And then God gives an even longer set of curses So when Elijah says Israel in his time had forsaken the Lord's covenant, he's putting Israel firmly in the latter category. He's saying they are not obeying the commandments and statutes of the Lord. They're being unfaithful to the God who had covenanted with them. He's saying the nation of Israel was breaking the law of God. They were living in active, unrepentant sin. Even though they had access to the truth of God's word uh, through the prophets, so I, we don't have time to go through all the different laws that God has given, gave Israel, and to think through which ones could Israel have broken. But Elijah mentions, mentions one, idolatry. That's the second thing he says. Idolatry was rampant amongst Israel at the time. And he puts this in terms of Israel uh, forsaking God's altars. What he's saying is Israel's forsaking the, the means of true worship of the true God, and instead they're going to worship idols in the context of Ahab's rule, the worship, worship of Baal. Uh, now, I think sometimes, I was thinking of this when I was studying, we re- idolatry shows up so much in Scripture, sometimes it's easy to sort of read past it. 
You know, you, you might remember the famous Calvin quote, all human hearts are idol factories, and be like, great, I get it, idolatry, and move on. Um, but idolatry is a fundamental and weighty sin. Uh, by saying Israel was engaged in idolatry, Elijah wasn't just pulling one sin out of a list of longer sins. He was accusing Israel of the most fundamental violation of their relationship with God. Brian Rosner, uh, in, in a book called New Dictionary of Biblical Theology, he defines idolatry this way, and it's really helpful. It's a really helpful quote. He says, In the Bible, there is no more serious charge than that of idolatry. Idolatry called for the strictest punishment, elicited the most disdainful polemic, prompted the most extreme measures of avoidance, and was regarded as the chief identifying characteristic of those who were the very antithesis of the people of God. And a little more condensed, he says, idolatry is the ultimate expression of unfaithfulness to God, and for that reason, it is the occasion for the severest divine punishment. Ultimate expression of unfaithfulness, and it earns the most severe divine punishment. There you have it. Idolatry in Scripture is the thing that separates the people of God from those who do not belong to the people of God, and that's both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And the question we have to ask is, why is idolatry such, such a, a big deal in Scripture? Why is it such an awful sin? And the answer the Bible gives is it lies in the attributes of God himself. Exodus 20 says, Do not make any gods besides me. Do not make an idol for yourself. Do not bow down and worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. A jealous God. So God is a jealous God, therefore Israel was not to worship or serve idols. And God repeats this command multiple times in the Pentateuch, including in Exodus 34, where he says his name is jealous. It's not just, he doesn't just say, I'm jealous, my name is jealous. I identify that closely with this attribute of jealousy. And the nation of Israel was defined by their worship of the one true God. You know, the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, Here is Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. So God's revealed himself to Israel and to us through Scripture that by his very nature he demands exclusive worship, exclusive glory, and exclusive honor. Therefore, idolatry is not just a sin. It's not just one of many it is a rejection of God. Rather than loving and serving the true God, you are creating something in his place. And if you want the New Testament equivalent explanation of that, read Romans 1. Paul lays it out as an exchanging of glory and giving it to things that are not God. But in our current context, amid worshiping Baal or one of the false gods of the nations around Israel— but remember, the New Testament is full of warnings against idolatry for you and I. First uh, John actually ends with a very blunt statement, little children, keep yourself from idols. And in Colossians, Paul actually connects greed uh, to idolatry. Uh, so more can be said on that, but the important thing to see here is Elijah was painting a picture of Israel's culture that they had rejected the true God. They were living in open obedience to God's law, and they had substituted true worship for idolatry. In other words, Israel was rejecting the true God in both worship and in practice. And the final sin that Elijah mentions is kind of an outworking of those two things. Uh, Israel was rejecting the word of God, and they expressed this by killing the Lord's prophets. Uh, You read that when he says, they have killed your prophets with the sword. So certainly that's murder, that's a clear sin, but in the Old Testament, prophets weren't just people you killed, they were the people who brought the word of the Lord. So the sin there was not just uh, murder, their sin was also rejecting the Lord's messengers. So this was, what, what Elijah's saying here is that uh, they have rejected hearing the convicting word of the Lord. You know, like I said, prophets in Elijah's time would bring a reminder that, hey, remember Deuteronomy, you're rejecting the Lord's covenant, you are bringing upon yourself these curses. But rather than listening to God's messengers, uh, Israel was killing those messengers to silence the convicting word of God. And of course, Jeremiah is a great example of this, right? He, he brings a message, and all the false prophets are saying, peace, peace, where there is no peace. And then what does the king do when he get Jeremiah, gets Jeremiah's scroll? He just starts tearing it up. He doesn't want to hear about it. That, the same thing is happening here. The Israelite culture in Elijah's time hated hearing God's word convicting them, so they killed God's prophets to silence them. And before I move on, one of the main reasons this was the case in Israel was the wicked leadership 
Um, turn back to First, First Kings. Sorry, First Kings sixteen. First Kings sixteen. It, God, through the author of Kings, describes the reign of Ahab. It, it, go to verse twenty nine. Ahab, son of Omri, became king over Israel in the thirty eighth year of Judah's king Asa. Ahab, son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria twenty two years. But Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight more than all those who were before him. Then, as if following the sin of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, was not enough, he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonites, and then proceeded to serve Baal and bow and worship to him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he had built in Samaria. Ahab also built an Asherah pole. Ahab did more to anger the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who had gone before him. So twice it says there that Ahab did more evil than all the kings that came before him. And Jezebel, his wife, was one of the ones actively involved in hunting down and killing God's prophets. So all that to say, this is the picture Elijah paints of the Israel's culture at the time. They had broken God's covenant, just as God warned them not to do. They were actively worshiping idols rather than the true God. And the nation from the top down was killing and rejecting prophets who spoke out against these evils. Complete rejection against the Lord, complete rejection of God's word, complete rebellion. And, you know, you read those sins and see the picture paints of the culture, and it's a strikingly modern picture, right? Rejection of God's word and their messengers living in open rebellion. So, so that's what Elijah how Elijah describes Israel. And so now I want to look at Elijah's perspective, his personal perspective. And the first thing I would remind you of is Elijah right now is hiding for his life in a cave in the mountain of the Lord. So even though God had just given him a great victory over the false prophets, he is now in a state of fear and despair. And, and in the face of all these sins that he's, he, he knows is going on in Israel, he's withdrawn himself from the situation. He's left, retreated. He's, he's done with it all. Remember earlier, like I said, he, he actually prayed for the Lord to let him die. He's in that level of having enough of it all. And, and when you read Elisha's reaction in light of the way he's described Israel, it's kind of relatable from a human perspective, right? You know, whenever you feel over your head, it's very tempting to just say, I've had enough. I just want to withdraw from these responsibilities and just leave. And Elijah is facing a culture that's completely rejected the Lord and is killing those who are worshiping the true God. So uh, another thing Elijah says is he says, I have been extremely zealous for the Lord of hosts. And this, this phrase gets more at the heart of his hopelessness. Uh, God tells God, you know, Elijah tells God that he's been exceedingly zealous, and then he contrasts that zeal with the culture around him. So in other words, what Elijah is doing here is he's questioning the effect of his zeal in serving the Lord. He's saying, I have been so zealous for you, Lord, and yet let me tell you how bad Israel is despite my best efforts. I think Elijah is sort of expressing the attitude of what's the point of it all at this, at this moment. I've been faithfully serving the Lord, but what effect has it had on the culture around him? And it reminds me of Psalm 73, where you have the psalmist, you know, look at the prosperity of the wicked, and he says, Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishment. That's a very similar spirit I think Elijah has right now. Every day he's suffering in a sinful culture, even though he's been zealous for the Lord. And, and as with Elijah's uh, desire to withdraw, it's a very human reaction. You know, uh, a lot of times it's very easy to think, if I am just zealous enough for the Lord, I can bring about X, Y, Z effects in the culture. But Elijah is seeing no results. And that leads us to the final thing about his attitude. Elijah feels completely alone. At the end of verse 14, he says, I alone am left, and they're looking for me to take my life. There you go. He says, I'm the last one. I'm the last leftover prophet of God, and there's a death sentence on my head. So if once I die, God, you know, there's going to be no one left to plead your cause among the people. So basically, Elijah's saying, I, I need to hide out here because if they kill me, no one else is going to worship the Lord. No one else is going to, you know, uh, follow your covenant and your word. Elijah sees himself as the last. He sees himself against all the forces of wickedness in Israel at the time. 
And again, stepping back, it's a completely human reaction. In light of the sinful culture around him, it makes sense that he would want to withdraw, that he would see himself as completely alone. He's sure that no one else is left with him. But, although it's a very human perspective that Elijah has, it is a very wrong perspective, and God corrects it in verse uh, 15 through 18. And so, uh, now I want to look at God's response to Elijah. Uh, And what's immediately striking is God responds to Elijah with a command immediately. Then the Lord said to him, Go and return by the way you came. God does not join Elijah in any sort of self-pity or uh, validate his depression. God hears Elijah's complaint, and then he says, All right, well, let me tell you what's going to happen next. And he tells Elijah that he needs to go back and anoint two kings and also anoint Elisha, his successor. So when you're reading this, you think, what is going on here? Has God not been listening? Why is he responding this way to Elijah? And I think the answer is in verse 17. Then Jehu will put to death whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death whoever escapes the sword of Jehu. What God is doing here is God is promising Elijah that he will have victory in the end. Elijah needs to go out and do his part because God is going to use those who Elijah anoints to bring judgment on the disobedient in Israel. Currently, Elijah is facing hatred of evil Queen Jezebel, the worst king of Israel so far in King Ahab, and Israel's turning away as a nation to worship a false god. And God's answer to all this is go and do these things, and in the end, I will defeat all these enemies. Jezebel, Ahab, false worship, I'm going to deal with them. And what I find most interesting, because I, I, as I read this, I had to keep going in the story, Elijah is long gone when God fulfills this promise. He is taken up uh, in a chariot of fire, as you know the story goes, and it's not until chapter 9 of Second Kings that Jehu is anointed king, and then he starts judging Ahab's house. At the end of chapter 9, Jezebel's killed. And that text in, in chapter 9 of 2 Kings makes explicit reference to Elijah saying, you're going to be, face judgment for what you've done. And then in chapter 10, Jehu kills the house of Ahab and then kills all the Baal worshippers in Israel. So in the end, God is going to judge all the wickedness that we see in Elijah's day, but Elijah is never going to see it. In other words... Elijah is called to go back into the dark, sinful culture with nothing but a promise that God will give him victory over his enemies in the end. As is often the case in Scripture, Elijah is called to labor in faith that God will fulfill his promises. So that's the first thing God says to Elijah. Go back to depraved Israel knowing that in the end, even if you don't see it, I will judge your enemies. But also he says, anoint Elijah, which means that the prophetic line is going to continue. Uh, Remember, uh, Elijah says, I'm the last prophet left. And God's answer is, well, then go anoint Elisha as a prophet in your place. Uh, Elisha's just finished telling God how alone he is. And, uh, you know, God's answer is, appoint a successor. I'm going to keep the prophetic line. Evidently, there is at least one other person left in Israel who could be a true prophet of the Lord besides Elijah, and that is Elisha. So all that to say, God's saying, you're not, you're not alone, Elijah. Uh, I'm not going to leave Israel without a true prophet. But that leads to the final and I think most significant thing God says here. God answers Elijah's complaints by saying, he will preserve a remnant of Israel who will not fall into idolatry. Let's read verse 18 again because it is so good. But I will leave 7,000, not 70,000, 7,000 in Israel, every knee that is not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. That is a powerful verse. God has just announced that he's going to judge Israel, but now God announces that there is a subsection of Israel that will not be judged because they are going to be true worshipers. And as I mentioned earlier, God uses the same word that Elijah used when he said, I'm all alone, I'm the only one left. And God says, no, no, I have 7,000 left who have not fallen into the sins of the nation. Now, I, I, let's think about this, what, what God says here a little bit. He's saying he's preserved 7,000 as a remnant in Israel. He's not saying that he's preserved everyone. 
right? 7,000 is a subset of the larger nation of Israel. He's not saying, I'm going to keep all of them. Uh, But also, 7,000, even though it's not everyone, it's not a small number. Remember, Elijah just got done saying, I'm alone. It's it's only me, me and you, God. And God says, no, I got 7,000, 7,000 others. So my point here is that God's actively preserving a remnant of the people. It's not the whole nation, but it's not a handful. It's not a few. It's 7,000. Also, implicit in what God says is that these 7,000 are known by God, even if they aren't known by Elijah. You know, if Elijah knew there were 7,000 true worshipers around, maybe he wouldn't be so depressed. Uh, But he he didn't have that perspective. Elijah's depression was based simply off observing the situation around him. But God is now coming to him and saying, you don't have all the information because you don't have all the knowledge. God in his omniscience knows who are his, and he knows that there is a remnant of true worshipers. And God graciously reveals this to Elijah to encourage him. Uh, But whether uh, Elijah knew about the 7,000 or not, that doesn't change the fact that God knew these people existed. So the last thing is God describes the 7,000 in terms of what they will not do. They will not bow their knee to Baal, and they have not kissed him. Again, both of these are signs of allegiance and worship. God is saying that these 7,000, that have not, they, they haven't aligned themselves with the rest of Israel. They're not following the idolatry that the rest of the nation had fallen into. Uh, they had not rejected the Lord. They had not joined in the sins of the nation. In other words, to put it positively, God is saying that this remnant, or this group, this remnant is true worshipers, true worshipers. You know, Elijah made it sound like he alone was zealous for the Lord, but God says, wrong again. There is a group that has not followed the sins of the culture. So there you have it. God tells Elijah that he has preserved 7,000. This 7,000 is not the majority, but it isn't a small number. This 7,000, it might not be known by Elijah, but they are known by God. And this 7,000, they represent true worshipers who have not fallen to the sins of the culture. So now, God has just given Elijah a, a promise of victory in the future, a command to appoint a successor, successor, and has revealed that he is preserving a remnant of true worshipers. The question now as a reader is, is this enough to get Elijah out of his despair and back into the game, so to speak. And the answer is given in the next verse. Elijah left there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, as he was plowing. So there, there you have it. He, Elijah left and he found Elisha. After being reminded of God's promises and sovereignty, Elijah goes and obeys. He leaves his place of, place of hiding and he goes to obey the Lord in faith. And that is, that's a glorious response to God's promises. And remember, from an earthly perspective, nothing has changed after this con, uh, conversation. Jezebel still wants to kill Elijah. Israel still is deeply in worship of idols. And Elijah does not have many allies around him who he knows of. So what has changed? Elijah's mindset. His mind has been renewed by the Lord, and he has faith in what God has just told him. Elijah was not told who the 7,000 true worshipers were or where he could find them. That didn't matter. It was enough for Elijah to know that God was preserving a remnant. In other words, the reminder of God's sovereignty over the sinful culture turned Elijah's discouragement into confident obedience. The culture didn't change, the situation didn't change, but Elijah's perspective had changed. So how could we, how could we summarize what, what Scripture's communicating here? Well, we've seen that Elijah despaired in a godless culture, but then God reminds him that he has preserved a believing remnant. And I think that points to a larger biblical reality that you and I need to be reminded of tonight. And I'm going to say it twice just for, so we get it in our heads, and then I'm going to draw out some implications. So this is the reality. God's servants should never despair because God sovereignly elects a believing remnant for himself, even in the darkest of cultures. I'm going to say it again. God's servants should never despair, because God sovereignly elects a believing remnant for himself, even in the darkest of cultures. So what are some biblical implications of this? The first is, faith and trust in God's sovereign election should give you indestructible hope. Faith and trust in God's sovereign election should give you and I indestructible hope. 
God encouraged Elijah that even in the nation of Israel that had completely rejected him, he was still active. God was still active in saving and preserving a remnant of true worshipers. God has always done this. He will never stop doing this, and he is doing it now. That's the united testimony throughout Scripture. God is not presented as a God who maybe saves or has the potential to save or maybe if he he wanted to, he could save. God is our salvation. That's how he's presented in Scripture. God raises sinners from spiritual death to life. Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. He doesn't say they might come to me. He says they will come to me. Again, he says later on in John, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Jesus is just giving a list of facts. Jesus isn't saying, well, you know, once, once the culture is more favorable, you know, then my sheep will be able to hear my voice and then they'll come to me. No, he says the ones who are coming to Christ are the ones the Father, the omniscient, all-powerful God is giving to the gift of belief in Christ. And then he says God is greater than all, greater than our sinful culture, greater than any of the forces that oppose him. And then you go to Acts. What about Acts? Paul's going into a city to preach the gospel, and God says, don't be afraid, for I am with you, and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you. Why? Because I have many people in this city. God says, I have the group of people in the city that are elected to eternal life. People here saved out of the sinful culture in which they live. And if that text wasn't clear enough, in Acts 13, Luke records this verse, when the Gentiles heard the message of the gospel, they rejoiced and honored the word of the Lord, and all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. And we could go on and on about this topic all night. God sovereignly saves. And this gives you and I hope as individual believers because there are no conditions on that statement. God sovereignly saves. It doesn't matter how sinful the culture is, God saves. Elijah thought he was alone serving God on an island, but no, there was a remnant of 7,000 true worshipers. Why? Because God saves. The doctrine of God's sovereign election turns our perspective from everything around us is falling apart to everything is going according to God's all-wise plan. So when you're watching the news of some sin America's falling into, or you read another one of those surveys about the compromises about evangelicalism in America, remind yourself right away that God is still sovereignly active in saving people for his glory, even in our culture. It doesn't matter the level of wickedness America falls into as a culture. If God has not given up on saving people for his glory, you and I should never despair or give up. We cannot save the culture, but we, like Elijah, can go out in confident obedience because we know in the end all who God elects will be saved. That's the first implication. God's sovereignty, faith and trust in God's sovereignty should give you indestructible hope. Next implication. You and I need to labor faithfully for God in a godless culture even when we don't see the fruit in the present. Labor faithfully for God in a godless culture even when you don't see fruit in the present. As I mentioned before, a big part of Elijah's discouragement was from his perspective. He was zealously serving the Lord, zealous, yes, very zealous, but nothing was changing in the culture around him, you know? And that means Elijah's depression, at least in part, was because he was not seeing the expected fruit of his ministry. And how easy it is for you and I to fall into the same trap You can faithfully disciple and lead your family, for example, and and then you just don't see any fruit of repentance in your kids. Or you can share the gospel again and again with an unsaved family member, and they still seem so hard-hearted. You can work hard at your job as unto the Lord, but nothing seems to be coming out of it. You can be single, and you seek to keep yourself pure, but God doesn't provide you with a spouse. In all these situations, the temptation is to say, what is going on? Lord, I've been zealously serving you. On my end, why haven't you acted? But God never guarantees or promises you will see the fruit of your service to him. Let me say that again. Sometimes you and I will labor for the Lord, and we won't see the fruit of it in this life. In Mark 4, God, uh, Jesus tells a very uh, memorable parable. I, I really think about this parable often. And it, 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 it's, in effect, talking about the kingdom of God as a farmer who sows and then goes to sleep. 
Okay, uh, the farmer he, he says the farmer casts seeds and then he goes to sleep and he doesn't see the grain sprouting. You know, the farmer doesn't sit around; he doesn't get to see the seed turning from seed to sprout to full crop. He simply does his job and then goes to sleep. He doesn't get to see the effect of his labor until the very end, when the harvest comes. I think this is a marvelous reminder of what the Christian life is like. God is under no obligation to show you every single effect and outcome of your service to him. In fact, I would say the pattern scripture presents is that you don't see the end result of your faithfulness in your lifetime. You know, prophets like Elijah or great men of faith like Abraham, they were called to be faithful to the Lord in the present, and they never saw the fulfillment of the promise. I think sometimes on this side of the cross, we feel like we're the first generation to have to, you know, hope for something that's not here yet. You know, like, oh, we're waiting for Christ to return. How long? But that is the normal pattern of Christians throughout history. One of my favorite quotes from a Christian dating book, of all things, was the normal posture of a Christian is waiting. That is, that is a profound statement. The normal posture of a Christian is waiting. It's not an exceptional case. And if you think it is, go to Hebrews 11 and look at all the, the great men of faith who basically looked at the promises far off and never apprehended them. So it, it's easy in the Christian culture to want to do big things for Jesus, but when you look at the Bible, some people who served the Lord best never got to see the effect of their actions in their lifetime. Elijah sure didn't. God didn't tell him who the 7,000 were. God didn't bring judgment on Ahab and Jezebel in his lifetime. But Elijah was still faithful. He was faithful to labor in this sinful culture. And the question is why? I think the answer is he had faith in the Lord's promises once he was reminded by the Lord that God is in control. And as a side note, I think it's a mercy that God doesn't let us see the positive results of our faithfulness all the time. You know, sometimes by not showing the effects of our faithfulness to him, uh, he's, one, keeping us from pride, and two, he's forcing us to keep trusting in him and on his promises. It's not like we're living in a, you know, I do this and then God gives me that world. He's not a vending machine. We're called to be faithful to him in the present regardless of the outcome. So, labor faithfully to the Lord without expecting the world to change on account of you. You might never see the fruit of your labors in this life, but... If you are serving in accordance with the Lord's will, your labor is not in vain. That's the second implication. Labor faithfully to the Lord, even if you don't see the fruits in your lifetime. Finally, well, actually, not finally, second to last. (laughs) God has a remnant in every tribe, tongue, and nation who will believe in Christ and the gospel. God has a remnant in every tribe, tongue, and nation who will believe in Christ and the gospel. What strikes me in this passage in 1 Kings 19 is how similar Elijah's encouragement is to what we see in the New Testament. You know, Jesus says, go out and make disciples of every nation. But when you look at church history and scripture, that has been so resisted by Satan and the evil world system. Suffering, persecution, animosity have all accompanied those who preach God's truth. But then God gives this, a similar encouragement he gives to Elijah. When we turn to Revelation 7, we see a remnant from every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping before the throne. And I think God's saying to us, the church, the same thing he's saying to Elijah. There will be those who will be saved out of this sinful world system. Christ did not die for empty pews. He died to purchase people, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who are true worshipers, worships who do not bow down to the idols of their culture, but worship the God in spirit and in truth. And that is what God says, that's where we're heading as a church, as believers. That's what we have to look forward to. Actually, Romans 11, turn there with me if you will. This is actually, Paul references the two verses we looked at tonight in reference to to Israel in the present. Romans 11, uh, he he just finishes up Romans 10 by saying, Israel has rejected Christ. And then you as the reader might think, oh, well, well, that makes sense. If Israel rejected Christ, then God must reject Israel. You know, it's logical, it makes sense. But Paul says, no, no, no. Uh, And then he takes you back to 1 Kings 19 to show you that what God did in Elijah's day was not something exceptional. It was following God's pattern of gracious free election. So if you're with me in Romans 11, I'm going to read the first six verses. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Absolutely not. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? 
Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I am the only one left, and they are trying to take my life. But what is God's answer to him? I have left 7,000 for myself who have not bowed down to Baal. In the same way, then, there is also at the present time a remnant chosen by grace. Now, if it by grace, then it is not by works. Otherwise, grace ceases to be grace. Notice, Paul is making a connection between past Israel and present Israel. In Elijah's day, almost all of Israel was rejecting God, but God was still merciful and saved 7,000 out of them. In the same way, in Paul's day, and in our day too, most of Israel rejects Jesus as the Messiah. But there were true believers who did believe in Christ. And the question is, why? Because the same God who was electing people by his grace in Elijah's time was electing people by his grace in Paul's time and in our time. We don't have time to develop this idea in Romans 11. That's a whole other sermon. Um, but I, I want you to see that both Romans uh, 11 with regards to Israel and Revelation 7 with regards to Israel and the nations, both these passages show that God has elected a believing remnant from every tribe, tongue, and nation. The God of First Kings 19 who snatches 7,000 Israelites from idolatry is the same God who snatches sinners from unbelief and rejection to Christ. And what an encouragement this is. You and I may not know who God will save, but we know God has a remnant of true worshipers who will run to Christ and find themselves with all the saints in eternity praising God forever. And the only reason you and I are here tonight is because God has chosen us to be a part of that remnant. And that should elicit from us the highest joy. Jesus once told his disciples, don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Knowing that God is going to get the worship for all eternity for the church is cause for joy enough. But to think that you and I here tonight, if we believe in Christ, are a part of that assembly. We're a part of that remnant from our culture, worship, to, called to worship God forever. So, so when you look at the, the majority of the culture, and you look at the majority of the cultures around the world, and you say, ah, they're just rejecting Christ, remind yourself that in that larger group who are rejecting Christ, God has said he has chosen a remnant of believers and then go out and preach the gospel, because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Finally, the last question I want to leave you with tonight is, where have you slipped into Elijah-like thinking? Where have you slipped into Elijah-like thinking? What do I mean by this? Well, I mean that, you know, when you face a culture falling deeper and deeper into sin around you, like we are living in, you can feel like it's you against the world. You know, you, even, even when you read the, the first couple chapters of, you know, First Kings, it really does feel like Elijah is against the world. You know, you, you read it, and it's always him confronting the false worshipers, him co- confronting the kings. And I think it's natural for you and I here in a local body to feel like we are the only ones standing for truth in the various spheres of your life. And that can lead you to discouragement or hopelessness if you aren't careful, you know, uh, say you're one of the few believers at work, you know, and you hear all sorts of lewd jokes and false ideas about uh, God and the world, that can discourage you and make you feel alone. Or, or maybe you're pouring yourself into a discipling relationship or evangelizing a lost family member, and it just doesn't seem to be working, and you don't see anyone else trying to build into them. You know, that can discourage you as well, and it might make you feel alone. And goodness gracious, if you read the news and you see different denominations compromising or local churches you might have known that they're compromising, it's very easy to feel alone. It's very easy to feel like you are on the losing side. Regardless of the situation, if a great prophet like Elijah could fall into this discouragement, take heed lest you fall as well. You know, don't think you're above this temptation to feel like you're on an island alone and you just got to withdraw because it's too much. So the question is, what can you do when you feel that? Exactly what God does with Elijah. Go into the Lord's presence through Scripture and be reminded of what God is doing even in the midst of your bad circumstances. You you have to take seriously the command to set your mind on things above where Christ is seated and not on things on the earth. And the reason you need to do this is because uh, you can easily get preoccupied with yourself or with the culture around you, and you can miss what God is doing. That's exactly what God said to Elijah. You know, Elijah, you know, he was falling into, like, uh, his own perspective and his own view of the world, and God says, hey, remember that I'm acting, too. I am saving, too. Or to put in the words of Jesus, you know, at the end of the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus says, you will have suffering in this world, but be courageous. I have conquered the world. 
the, the encouragement Jesus is giving to his disciples here is, look to me. Uh, you will have suffering, but be courageous because I will cause you to have victory in this life and in the life to come. What Elijah needed to be reminded of, what Jesus' disciples needed to be reminded of, we need to be reminded of as well. Even when we're in the worst of situations, the world is not greater than God. The world is not greater than Christ. If you are a believer, you are on the winning side. Christ, through his death and resurrection, has triumphed over principalities and powers, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. And Paul says in a wonderful doxology in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? in all these things. And he lists a ton of sufferings, persecutions, and martyrdoms. He says in all those things, we, the church, are more than conquerors. How? How are we more than conquerors? Through him who loved us. God's response to Elijah takes him back from the subjective feelings and takes him back to God himself. That's what Jesus does, and that's what Paul does. We need to go back to the God who acts, the God who saves, the God who prevails over sin and unbelief, no matter how dark the culture is. So when you feel yourself wanting to withdraw like Elijah did, or you feel discouraged or in despair, pick up God's word and let it remind you that Christ has won an objective, decisive victory. Christians can be confident because Christ has conquered sin, death, and the devil. And to conclude, when I was, when I was studying, uh, this made me think of uh, the wonderful hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And there's this great line that says, and, and though this world with devil's fill should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. You and I are not going to triumph because of anything in ourselves. The only hope of victory we have in this culture, in this time we are living in, is that God hath willed. God's will, God's sovereignty. That is the foundation of our hope. That is what we bank on. That is the hope that we need to be reminded of, just like Elijah was reminded of. As the culture around us darkens, we can't withdraw on ourselves. We can't become discouraged or fear that we're alone. God is just as active as he's always been, saving humans through Christ for his glory. That's the reminder Elijah needed. That's the reminder we need, that God was working even in a sinful culture like Israel, even in a sinful culture we live in now. And as we are reminded of this tonight, we need to go out like Elijah and live in obedience to God in the time, place, and circumstance he has called us to. We are not promised to see the fruit. We're not promised even to change the culture. But we are promised that God saves, and he saves through Christ, and it will be glorious in the end when we see the fruit of God's work for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a God who saves. Thank you that you've become our salvation Thank you that we can glory in that salvation tonight. We can meditate on Christ and that he didn't die for uh, uh, empty pews, but he died to bring a people, a definite people to yourself. I pray that you would encourage all of our hearts as we go into this sinful world this week. Help us to not feel alone. Help us to not feel uh, discouraged. Help us to be encouraged by the truth that you have already said you will save Uh, through Christ, for your glory, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Thank you for that glorious hope we have, that glorious future we're looking forward to. Please strengthen us as a local body as we seek to be faithful until your return. Please encourage us this week and allow us to be faithful to you in the circumstances you've called us to. We love you. Thank you for your precious word and your precious promises. In Jesus' name, amen.